I invite you to take one of the Bibles in front of you. Maybe you've brought your own. That's also great. Turn to the second gospel in the New Testament, which is the gospel of Mark. And if you've never read the story of Jesus, this is the shortest one, the easiest one to read, and you are encouraged to do so. If you pick up a Bible and are thinking, where in the world do I start? It's good to start with the story of Jesus. We are in Mark 8, verses 31 through 38, and I'm going to pray and ask that God's Spirit will help us hear this word through what we read and also through what I say and through what you're thinking and how you're churning inside. Let's pray. You are the word, the revelation of the living God, O oh Jesus, and we know that we cannot really hear you apart from your spirit at work in our worship, leading us, and in our hearts, speaking to us and opening us up. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, to the end of that chapter. Listen to God's word to you. Then Jesus began to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the gift of God's word. Thanks be to God. We could hear this passage and think... Okay, Jesus said it. It's part of the red letters in the Bible. So we believe it. Let's move on. No, this is a really, really hard passage. And we need to stop and wrestle with it and acknowledge just how hard it is. Right before this passage... Peter and the disciples are asked by Jesus, who do you think I am? Peter comes up with the right answer. He says, you are the Christ. In other words, you are God's Messiah that we've been waiting for. It was an amazing thing that he made that very accurate confession of faith right before this difficult passage that I just read. Right after this difficult passage, they go up on a mountain and Jesus is transfigured before them. He is glowing. 
And he appears with two other great leaders, Elijah and Moses, and it's this incredible moment where it's very, very clear visually, viscerally, that he is indeed God's Messiah, the Son of Man. And the very last thing you hear is a booming voice from heaven saying, listen to him. Okay, they're listening. We're listening. And he is saying, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected and be killed. And by this time, they're not listening to anything else. They're not listening to him say, well, he is going to rise again. They are so shocked by what he has just said. And then he goes on and says something doubly shocking. If you want to be my disciples and I'm going to be your rabbi, you're going to have to walk the same path. You are going to have to lose your life because if you want to save your life, you will lose it. But those who lose their life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. Okay, let's just say this is counter to the way we are hardwired. To think that way and to journey that way. Everything in us, biologically, neurologically, is designed and hardwired to protect our lives, to save life, to respond in a way that is the opposite of what he just described. I had the extreme delight this last Tuesday... This is London Maximiliana Fonda, and she was born on Tuesday. She is one day old when I'm in there. And it was so fun to see her in her little crib, and she's all swaddled up the way they do now with babies. And it was just this highly protective environment because, you know, she's this vulnerable little thing. And as her brother, Luca, was leaning over the crib trying to kiss her, the grandmother's hanging on so he doesn't fall in the crib and crush her. We protect life every day. We pray for the safety of our children and those we love. And even at the other end of life, in the last chapter of life, with our aging parents and grandparents, we do everything we can to prolong their life. And when it comes time for them to be on hospice, we do everything we can to alleviate their suffering. And here Jesus, God's Messiah, is saying, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. And the Son of Man is going to undergo great suffering and be rejected and be killed. So just to kind of help us wrestle with this a little bit, I want you to imagine that your company is looking for a new CEO, and there's a big headhunting, international headhunting effort going on to find somebody that's brilliant and competent with great partnerships, great abilities in building relationships, working relationships, able to launch your company into a new day. Or imagine that you decided to get involved in a political campaign because you so believe in this candidate. This candidate can get the votes. This candidate can get the job done. Okay, whether it's the new CEO or the political candidate that you love, imagine this person sitting down with all of you and saying, okay, this is the plan. I'm going to suffer, and then after that, I'm actually going to be rejected by all the key leaders that we're supposed to be working with. And then after that, they're actually going to put me to death. But I'm going to come back. What would your response be? What would your response be? 
What? Disbelief. You're insane. <laughs> Maybe that's where Jesus comes up with that phrase, if you're ashamed of me and my words. We need to sit with the discomfort, the tension of this. Jesus did. Jesus wrestled with this. I want you to think of the toughest times in Jesus' life as we see him in his ministry. And three times he is wrestling with this difficult road and what this means. The first time's in our passage. When Peter, hearing Jesus announce that he's going to suffer and be rejected and killed, how does Peter respond? He rebukes Jesus. That's strong language. He rebukes Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. He realizes that in this exchange with Peter, he is wrestling with Satan. This temptation to save your life. Don't go down that road. Save your life. There's a wrestling going on there inside Jesus. How do we know that? Because another time that we see him wrestling is when he's out 40 days in the wilderness wrestling with Satan. And what is Satan tempting Jesus to do? Save your life. Watch out for you. Save your life again and again. The third time we see Jesus wrestling with this is where? The very end of the story He's wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is agonizing. He is sweating drops of blood. Why? Because he knows what's coming. He knows the suffering. He knows the death. He knows the hell. He knows that's what's ahead of him, and he does not want it. And he is wrestling. This is his greatness that we're seeing. Wrestling with trusting God enough to let go. What many of you are memorizing in Philippians 2. That he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Trusted God enough on that cross to pray, into your hands I commit my spirit. But it was a wrestling. Every step of the way. Because it's so counter to what it means to be human. And he's completely human. He's hardwired in the same way that every other human being is, which is to protect life. It's what we see him doing, to alleviate suffering, to heal bodies. And so in this little bunch of chapters in Mark, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, this little collection, they go together, and Jesus is teaching three times in this collection of chapters about what's coming. He's plainly laying it out there three times. This is what's going to happen to me, the Son of Man. And every time he does, the disciples come back with their version of what it looks like to save your life. The one that we're more familiar with. The first time we see it is right here. When Jesus says, okay, this is what's going to happen. He lays this out plainly. And then Peter's like, no, that is a really stupid plan. Really stupid. So that's our kind of automatic counter you know, to that teaching. Then in chapter 9, Jesus says it again, just as plainly. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to be raised from the dead. Very next story. 
The disciples were all jockeying for who's greatest in the kingdom. Interesting. Then in chapter 10, once again, Jesus lays it out there. This is what's going to happen to me. I am going to be going through a lot of suffering, rejection. I will be killed. And the very next story, James and John are saying, Excuse me, Jesus, can we be on your right hand when you come into your glory? See, this was their understanding of what it looks like to save your life. You take care of you. You make sure that your life is safe. You make sure that your position and your place in the world is secure. That's what they're doing. Save your life. Jesus, this is what it looks like. Not suffering, rejection, and death. Well, interestingly enough, in this cluster of stories, Jesus teaches, teaches, teaches. They're giving the counter. No, this is what it looks like to save your life. This is framed by two stories about healing the blind. Interesting. It's not an accident. Mark does this on purpose. There's healing of blindness and then all this teaching, hard, hard teaching about what it means to save your life. Jesus is saying one way, the disciples are going a completely different way, and then you have another teaching or a story about the healing of a blind man, blind Bartimaeus. Okay, so what is God trying to help us see? God's trying to heal their blindness. God's trying to heal our blindness. And what is it that God is trying to help us see? I think in that phrase, save your life, God's trying to give us a different vision of what life is. I think we in our culture tend to be very small in the way we think about life. And God is obviously life itself. So God's vision is very, very large beyond what we can see. I was listening to an interview on the radio with the author of a book. His name is Bill Gifford. and He just wrote a book titled Spring Chicken, Stay Young Forever or Die Trying. And it is this funny, I think it's supposed to be somewhat funny, but it's also a very accurate look of all the ways that our culture today is living out this great obsession of trying to stay young forever. And you see it all around you, anti-aging cosmetics, anti-aging clinics. I mean, everything is about staying young and buff and fit and young as long as possible. And some of these things are scams that he writes about. There's this guy, it's not really a scam, but he's 74 and his name is Jeffrey Life. They call him Dr. Life, who takes these growth hormones and swears that this is keeping him buff and even though it's not good for him. Okay, that's one way that we think about life. And perhaps that's what Jesus means when he says this sinful and adulterous generation, clinging to a very, very small definition of what life is, replacing God as the source of life with this very small understanding of being buff and fit and young. To counter that, the book and the writer actually that's been the most helpful for me in healing my own blindness and not hanging on to a shrunken understanding of life, there is a Catholic priest, his name is Richard Rohr. He's a prolific writer. And he wrote this book that many of us have read together among my friends called Falling Upwards. The subtitle is A Spirituality for Two Halves of Life. 
He's not talking chronological in terms of, you know, 0 to 50 and then 50 to 100. He's talking about at the beginning of your life, you really become clear about who you are. Your identity, your body, your place in the world, building your career, building a home, building a family. There's that kind of form to your life, structure to your life. And then after that, you move into the latter part of life, which is understanding why you're here. And using all of that, who you are, your identity, your gifts, your place in the world, for the sake of the bigger definition of life. It's the kind of thing we saw active in Martin Luther King Jr., who had his life, he had his family, he had his place, he had his career, he was a pastor, but he didn't cling to that. Yes, he didn't want to die, he said, but he was giving his life and all that was given to him for the sake of a larger definition of life and God's work in the world. And Richard Rohr claims that we are a first-half-of-life culture, that we cling to youth, we cling to the form, and we are losing that larger question of why are we here? What is this larger work of God and what life, big L, capital L, is all about? So Jesus, when he's talking about life and death and bracketed by these healing stories, is trying to heal what we see in terms of how we define life. So I think that's one healing of vision that Jesus is doing and that Mark is helping us to see and recognize in the gospel. I think another healing of what we see is a different vision of save. Save your life. Interesting, because Jesus said he came to save. And he did. He came to seek and to save the lost, to use his own words. And we see him doing a lot of healing. We see him actually raising the dead. But his greatest act of saving, of salvation, was not restoring a mortal life like Lazarus when he raised him out of the grave. No, his greatest act of salvation is described in Philippians 2, when he becomes obedient unto death, when he empties himself. That's why God highly exalts him and gives him the name that's above every name. Because there's something about that trust, there's something about that dependence on God that needs to be saved. That's what most needs to be saved. You've all heard the story about the man that tumbled over a cliff and he's dangling one arm Uh, surely he's going to fall to his death but as he hangs on he cries out is there anybody that can help me help me help me he's screaming screaming and finally he hears a response yes I am here I can help you and comes to discover that it is God and oh Lord thank you what you know tell me help me what can I do and he says this is what you need to do let go And the man pauses and then says, is there anybody else up there? (laughs) Yeah. Jesus could do that. He could trust and obey and give his life for the sake of bigger life. To save something more important, which was trusting that voice, God's greater life. Our vision, a larger vision of life, a larger vision of save, trusting in the source of all life. So what does this look like now for us? Right now, here where we live our lives. 
Two stories come to mind. One is a couple, Ben and Jen, they moved into a very violent part of Minneapolis several years ago. They felt called to be there to help bring transformation. This was something that came out of their own journey of faith as followers of Jesus. But they moved there to be a part of transformation in that neighborhood before they had children. Now they have children, Esme and Kellen. And there had been some shootings recently in the neighborhood. There was a violent break-in in the house right across the street from where they were living. So Ben was beginning to doubt whether they had the spiritual resources to stay and keep their commitment to the neighborhood. Well, about that time, Ben went away on a spiritual retreat all the way to Iona, which is a place of pilgrimage for a lot of people. And while he was there, there was a turning point that came as he was praying about this and agonizing and wrestling, especially over the safety of his children. And what came to him a seeing was that he felt in a new way his connection with the other families in his neighborhood. So that this very sacred part of Ben, to love and to care for and to raise his children, was extended into all the children in that neighborhood. So that he began to see their lives as precious as his own. So his seeing changed. His desire was not just to protect what was his. It expanded to include those who were in the larger neighborhood. And they decided to stay. Another picture of what this looks like today is in a friend, a colleague of mine, pretty well known nationally and internationally. His name is Steve Hainer. In the prime of his life, he's a Presbyterian pastor, president of Columbia Theological Seminary, used to be the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, He has worked for the cause of justice and racial reconciliation all around the world. Servant leader, impact of his mentoring has been felt all over. Then last April, found out he had pancreatic cancer. It had metastasized in his liver. He worked hard. He did every treatment that was available to him to save his life. And then after Christmas transitioned from treatments into hospice care. And then about three or four weeks ago, he died. But the way he journeyed with cancer and the way he journeyed into his death modeled for all of us what it means to save your life. In fact, the way he journeyed was so powerful for those who were with him and those who were on his caring bridge. They're going to actually write a book using his posts from his caring bridge site. It was an inspiration to me, to everybody who knows him as I'm wrestling with what it means to see differently the larger definition of life, the larger definition of save. It is all about that relationship of trust. Steve Hainer, before he died, and they were planning his memorial service before he died, he told Mark Laverton, I feel like God was preparing me my whole life for this moment. 
It wasn't easy for Steve. I don't think it was easy. And I think it's true that he was preparing his whole life, wrestling with the very thing that Jesus wrestled with. And yet, because Jesus has wrestled and won, able to give us new eyes as we pray and wait and lean into Jesus. I don't think it was easy for Ben and Jen, concerned about the safety of their children. I don't think it was easy for Jesus. And I don't think it's going to be easy for us. As I watch my eyelids droop and wonder about cosmetic surgery, as I want to protect my life, my predictable life, my world, my neighborhood, my nation, my income, what does it mean to really have different eyes, to see life with a capital L, to understand being saved as being able to trust God enough that I can say, into your hands I commit my spirit and everything I treasure, and I want to understand what life is according to you, who are life, the way, the truth, the life. He gives us the strength to do this. Because Peter, what happened to Peter? Eventually he did follow Jesus. Suffering, rejection, and crucifixion. But he's very much alive and very much experiencing the fullness of life and the fullness of God's saving grace. And we can too, as we wrestle with Jesus who wins for us. Let's pray. Jesus, you know where it is we're wrestling right now, each one of us. How easy it is to go the direction of our culture and to think of life so small, so shrunken, just what we see. Lead us into the fullness of your vision, your seeing, the way you want to heal what we see, the way you want to heal our ability to be obedient and to trust you with all of who we are. By your power at work in us, save our lives. We thank you for wrestling and journeying ahead of us on our behalf. Amen.